that, let us now open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. As we saw last Sunday, Hebrews chapter 13 begins with a series of bullet point exhortations. Each one meant to flesh out in some way what it means for us to run with endurance the race of faith that has been set before us. That has been the author's theme throughout this letter. He has been calling and encouraging the Hebrews to run with endurance, not to give up, not to leave, not to drift away from Jesus, but to remain steadfast in their allegiance to him as the Redeemer and Lord of their lives. Here he now begins to flesh that out with some specific exhortations. We looked at the first three of these last Sunday, having to do with love, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, love for the stranger, and love for those who are imprisoned and mistreated. The next two exhortations in the chapter have to do with sex and money. We'll be looking at the first of these this morning, the one dealing with marriage and sexuality. But before we hear God's word read, I want us to pray and ask for his grace to receive his word as it actually is, as the very word of God, the words of life. Let us pray and ask God to prepare our hearts to receive his word this morning. Father God, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your word. And we ask you now that you would prepare us to receive it as it is. Open our hearts that we might receive it with faith and with love. And strengthen us that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, our focus this morning is going to be on the exhortation in verse 4, the, the exhortation dealing with marriage and the marriage bed. However, before we look at that exhortation in detail, I want us to consider in general the significance of the author addressing this topic, sexuality, here in verse 4, and then addressing the, the topic of money in verses 5 and 6. I want to suggest to you that the author's willingness to address these topics reveals to us something vital about the nature of faith and about the, the transforming power of faith. I want to suggest to you that the author's willingness to address these subjects suggests to us that the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is a faith that transforms our lives even to the very Think about it. Sex and, and money are two of the topics that we're told not to talk about at dinner parties. And I've often been told that these are the topics that married couples argue about more than any others. In fact, I make a point of, of addressing these very topics in all my premarital counseling. And if you picked up almost any book on marriage, you would find chapters addressing these topics. But why is that? Why are, are sex and money such volatile topics? I believe they are volatile because they, they touch the very core of our being. They, they are rooted near our hearts. 
our desires and our fears related to sexuality and to, to possessions are some of the deepest fears and desires that we have. And because we are sinners, they are the, the fears and desires about which we are least willing to compromise. For us, it, it seems that, that getting our way in these areas is vital to our well-being, it's vital to our happiness, that, that if we can't have our way here, then we can't be truly happy. We are, we are willing to tolerate uh, a form of self-denial related to other things, more peripheral things, less central issues. But denying ourselves in these areas feels, it feels too much like dying. And so we resist it. We, we hate it. And yet, isn't that exactly what, what Jesus told us to expect? He told us that, that following him would feel like dying because following him, putting our faith in him, believing in him, transforms us to our core. It doesn't just touch the, the periphery of our life. It doesn't just change a, a habit here or a routine there. To, to follow Jesus, to, to commit to him, to, to put our faith in him, to, to receive him as Lord changes everything. We could say that Jesus only has radical disciples. A radical disciple is a to-the-root disciple, a, a disciple who is devoted to Jesus, devoted to his Lord all the way to the root. And this is what Jesus demands. Jesus himself said that if anyone would come after me, he must, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow the one who will not lose his life, the one who will not die for Jesus' sake, that one cannot be his disciple. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we must allow our faith in him to transform our lives, even to the very so the question that we face as we come to these next two exhortations in chapter 13 is just that. Are we willing, are we willing, not to, to talk about loving our neighbor in some vague way, but are we willing to allow faith in Jesus Christ to transform our lives even at the core level of our sexuality, even at the, the core level of our relationship with possession? Because that is what Jesus demands. So the first thing that I, that I want you to see this morning, even before we get into the specifics of the command itself, is I, I want you to see the radical nature of faith. I want you to see that the faith that we are being called to, the faith that we are being called to endure in, the faith we are being called not to drift from, is a radical faith. It is a, a transforming faith. It is a faith that renews us to our very core. A faith that renews even our, our views of sexuality and of money. So that understanding, understanding the full significance of what we are about to look at, let us consider what this faith does to our understanding of sex. The author's exhortation is actually pretty clear. He says, honor marriage and keep the marriage bed undefiled. It's a, it's a straightforward command, but what does it mean to honor marriage? 
I want to give to you this morning four, uh, four aspects, four, four perspectives on, on what it means to honor marriage. The first is, is taken more from our modern culture. The, the next three are taken from the, the first century. We see evidence of them in the pages of Scripture itself. But I think each of them is applicable to our situation today. So let's begin. What does it mean to honor marriage? I, I think that most conservative Christians today, most people in our circles, when we hear that language of honoring marriage, the first thing that comes to mind is, is resisting those who would redefine marriage to, to include homosexual unions. When we hear the language of honoring marriage today, we, we almost immediately assume that someone is talking about resisting the LBGTQ agenda, that, that agenda which wants to, to normalize and, and promote the acceptance of, of homosexual desire and homosexual practice, and it wants to, to promote homosexual marriage, uh, marriage as, as a legitimate union between two people of the same sex. It is commonplace in our culture today. So I want you to hear me say this morning that, that there is no doubt that honoring marriage must include standing against those who would redefine marriage. It, it must include that because the scriptures are abundantly clear that, that homosexual desire and, and homosexual practice are unnatural. Now what does that mean to, to say that they are unnatural? Natural. It doesn't mean that people do not experience these feelings naturally. I am persuaded that they do. I am, I am persuaded that, that many people have a, have a predisposition in their body towards homosexual desire. To use the, the modern parlance, I am persuaded that some people are born that way. Now, I know Christians resist this idea, but I don't, I don't think it should be that controversial. And I don't think it should be that... Surprising. We, we see it all the time. Our bodies are riddled with the, the myriad manifestations of the fall. Our, our bodies show the, the realities of our brokenness. Some of us are, are predisposed to physical maladies. We are, we are predisposed to diabetes or to obesity or, or to cancer. We, we have a physical predisposition. I can tell you that, that I am only a few pounds overweight, not because I have such self-control in what I eat, but because I was blessed with a good metabolism. If I had a different body, my situation would be gravely different. I am not predisposed to obesity, but I might be predisposed to diabetes. My father has diabetes. He developed it later in life, and that, that may be something that I have to fight against and, and wrestle with later in my life. Life. We, we have physical predispositions towards certain physical maladies. And it's not just physical maladies. There are also mental and, and emotional maladies and illnesses that, that some of us are predisposed to. Some of us are more predisposed to anxiety or, or to uh, compulsion or, or uh, to fear and depression. We, we are disposed to, to different maladies. We are disposed to different illnesses. And not all of us are the same. And so it is not surprising that some of us would be predisposed to homosexual desire. That doesn't in any way excuse it. 
It simply makes us aware that, that some people experience these desires naturally. They are born with this brokenness. But if they experience these desires naturally, what does it mean to say that, that homosexual desire is unnatural, as, as Paul does in Romans chapter 1? I said it doesn't mean that they don't experience these things naturally. It doesn't mean that they weren't born that way. But rather, it means that what they are experiencing is, in fact, a, a result of the fall. What they are experiencing is out of accord with God's design. See, God is the one who, who spoke all things into existence. And when all things conformed to his word, all things were good, even very good. But when man rebelled against God, they brought sin and death into the world. The world was bent. The world was, was twisted. It was broken. It no longer re reflected God's design for creation. And that is exactly what we believe about homosexual desire. It is a twisted desire. It is a disordered love. It is a sign of our brokenness. And because it is an unnatural desire, because it is a desire that is out of accord with God's design, it is by definition then a sinful desire. Sin is any want of conformity to or, or transgression of God's word. When we, when we fail to conform to what God says we should be or when we cross a line that God says we shouldn't cross. When we sin either by omission or by, by commission, we are in sin because we are transgressing God's word. We are transgressing God's law. God's word defines what is good. God's word defines what is natural. And homosexual desire falls beyond that pale. Homosexual desire, homosexual practice are unnatural and sinful behaviors. And therefore, in our day, we must resist those who would suggest that marriage can be redefined. It cannot be redefined to include homosexual relationships. But I want you to understand that this is not this is not simply an expression of our distaste for homosexual practice. But it is rather an expression of our love. In our day and age, those who oppose the homosexual agenda, they are often seen as cruel. They are often seen as unkind. And, and to a certain degree, this is because they often have been. Christians have been cruel. Christians have been unkind in their opposition to homosexual, the homosexual agenda. However, even if we had been perfectly patient, perfectly kind, perfectly gentle, in all that we had ever said, we would still be seen as cruel. We would be seen as cruel because we are telling people that, the, that to express their most basic and core sexual desires is inappropriate and sinful and therefore must be resisted. And those desires must be put to death. And in our day and age, such teaching can only be heard as cruel. But we must stand by it. We must continue to honor marriage as God has designed it. Because we believe that God's design is at the very foundation of true shalom 
and it is at the very foundation of human flourishing. You see, it is God who decided that, that marriage would be at the very foundation of human civilizations. It was God who said it was necessary for man to, and woman to be joined together in marriage in order for his shalom to be spread to the ends of the earth. The task that he gave man as his image bearer of taking dominion, of establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that task required man and woman to be united together. And so... It is not okay, it is not good for us to redefine marriage as we see fit. And so to honor Jesus as Lord and to serve his kingdom well, we must honor marriage as it has been given to us by God. That is first. We must resist the, the homosexual agenda that would redefine Marriage, Not because we despise those who struggle in these ways. Their struggles are, are like our struggles. We all have a bent towards sin. We all have unnatural, disordered desires that must be resisted. The point is not that, that their behavior is worse than others. The point, rather, is that we believe that Jesus is a good king. And we bow to his word. We bow to his design for marriage. Because we believe that in, his king, that in his kingdom and in his shalom, we will find our ultimate good. The same thing could be said about those in Paul's day who were denying the, the goodness of marriage. This is another way of, of dishonoring marriage that we see in the, the pages of the New Testament in his first letter to Timothy, Paul addresses those who were prohibiting marriage. And his words of, of warning against them are couched in the, the strongest possible language. He, he says that they are actually committed to the, the teaching of demons. He says that their consciences have been seared. Why would Paul use such strong language to oppose this false teaching? I believe that, that Paul opposed those who were prohibiting marriage so strongly because he understood that prohibiting marriage struck at the very vitals of human society. Again, remember what we just saw. It was God who designed marriage. It was God who gave marriage as a gift to mankind. It was God who said that this union between a man and a woman would be the, the foundation of, of his shalom in the world. And so when someone comes along and says that it would be better for people not to marry, that, that those who, are, who want to be truly spiritual, those who want to truly please God must renounce marriage, must renounce sexuality, and they must commit themselves to a perpetual virginity so that they can be devoted fully to the Lord. That teaching, while it sounds pious at first, is actually the height of human hubris. Because it denies the goodness of what God himself called good. God himself said it was very good when man and woman were united in marriage. As a, as a partnership to, to take dominion of all of creation and to fill it with God-honoring image bearers. That was God's design. That was God's plan. When, the, when, when others come along and say, no, it would be better for us 
to, to remain single. It would be better for us not to marry. It would be better for us to, to renounce those, those evil bodily desires of sexuality. They sound pious. They, they sound wise. But they are contradicting God's very word. And so again, one of the ways that we honor Jesus as Lord, and one of the ways that, that we uh, uh, work out our faith in him, is by honoring the goodness of marriage, by, by honoring as the good gift that it is. We must resist those who would prohibit marriage. Now this raises questions about those who are single in our day. If, if marriage is good, if marriage is, is the foundational relationship through which uh, man's task of dominion is going to be fulfilled, what about those who are single in our day? It's, a, it's an important question, so let me, let me address it just briefly. Paul makes it abundantly clear that in this present day, there are those who are called to singleness. Now, a Christian might be called to singleness for a season, or he might be called to, to, to singleness for his life. And that, that call might be uh, joyfully received, or it might be providentially imposed. There are some who want to be married, but who have not been given the opportunities. There are others who, who joyfully recognize that they have been called to singleness. But either way, the, the calling is from God, and the calling is a noble one. There are ways that a single person can serve the Lord that are not open to someone who is married. And so if you have been called to singleness, whether for a season or whether for life, you have a noble calling. You have an opportunity to serve the Lord in ways that, that those who are married cannot. You've all heard the stories of, of the minister who sacrificed his marriage and his family to his ministry. God is not pleased with such sacrifices. The one who is married has certain obligations, and those obligations have a priority. They come first. The one who is single has a different kind of freedom to do things that those who are married might not be able to do. And so it is a noble calling. But while it is a noble calling, it is a sacrificial calling. You have given up something of value. You have given up something good. And so while we affirm the nobility of singleness, and we, we, we affirm the goodness of the call to singleness at the same time, we fully affirm, and we must fully affirm, the goodness of marriage. Because it is in marriage that, that man and woman come together in a, in a union that allows them to, to pursue the calling that God has placed upon mankind. God said it was not good for man to be alone. God said that, that man by himself just as male, could, could not fulfill the, the calling that he had received as an image bearer of God. God said that marriage was going to be foundational to man's vocation as an image bearer, as one meant to, to extend God's good dominion even to the ends of the earth. And so while we must uh, resist those who would redefine marriage, we must also Resist those who would degrade marriage as, as something less than ideal for those who would truly serve the 
the Lord. God's design from the beginning was marriage. But thirdly, not only must we seek to, to resist those who would define the essence of marriage, or not only would we seek the, to not only must we resist those who would seek to deny the, the goodness of marriage, thirdly, we must also resist those who would deny the, the necessity of marriage. Here I am I'm thinking primarily of, of those who, who promote what is wrongly called sexual freedom in our day. The idea that, that any two consenting adults can relate to each other uh, sexually in any way that they choose. That, that why would God care who you are sleeping with so long as he has your heart? It's an idea that is often promoted today. Many people today struggle to understand why God cares about our sex life. I think this is actually precisely the, the, the misunderstanding that we see at work in the Corinthian church. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, addresses the, the Corinthian church because they are tolerating a, a type of sexual immorality that not even the, the non-believers would tolerate. And rather than being mortified by this, they're actually boasting about it. They seem to believe that their toleration and their, their full acceptance of, of this type of sexual immorality somehow places on display their profound understanding of God's grace. They understand that, that they have been reconciled to God, not by what they have done, but by what Christ has done for them. They are saved by grace. And therefore they are free to do with their body whatever they choose. Paul says, not so. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have received him as Lord, you must submit even your sexual life to his lordship. You must allow your faith in him to redefine you even at this core level. But why? Why, why does God care? about our sex lives? Why, why does he give us in, instructions about where sex is appropriate? Why does he, he limit sexual intimacy to a covenant union between a man and a woman for life? It's not because he is anti-sex. It's not because he is anti-pleasure or anti-fun. Not at all. It is actually because he is for you and he is for your joy and he is for your eternal flourishing. God is the one who created sexuality. He understands its power. He understands that when two people come together sexually, they are joined in a, in a profound and, and mysterious way. And he understands that, that such a union is only safe within the bonds of a covenant marriage, to, uh, within the bonds of a death-do-us-part union. When we begin to, to unite any way we choose, again and again, in a, in a serial matter, whether we believe it or not, we cannot help doing damage to ourselves and to the one with whom we unite. One of my professors compared it to taking two pieces of paper and, and gluing them together and then tearing them apart and then doing it again and again and again. Because when you do that, you cannot but do damage to the paper. 
And in the same way, when, when a human being unites with another human being in an act of sexual intimacy, they are united in a profound and, and mysterious way. We, we don't fully comprehend it, but we must acknowledge it. And when we tear apart, we tear ourselves apart again and again and again, we, we cannot but do damage. And so yet again, to honor Jesus as our King is to believe Him when He tells us about the power of sexuality, when He tells us that, that, that sexuality is only good and safe within the bounds of a marriage. We must allow our faith in Jesus Christ to resist the teachings of the world, the, the so-called sexual freedom that the world promotes, to see it as the lie that it is, to see it as the death-inducing, death-producing lie that it is. And so we must resist those who would redefine the essence of marriage. We, we must resist those who, who deny the, the goodness of marriage. We, we must resist those who deny the necessity of marriage. And finally, we must resist those who deny the mystery of marriage. Just said that when two people come together in a sexual union, they are united. They, they become one flesh in a profound and mysterious way. And we must acknowledge this. Again, this was being challenged in the early church. Paul and Peter both specifically address new converts who, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but whose spouses have remained unbelievers. And there were those in the early church who were suggesting that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, if their spouse does not also come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the new convert ought to divorce their spouse. For after all, how can a Christian be unequally yoked with a non-Christian? Again, like so many of Satan's lies, it sounds pious. It, it sounds like it is, it is good advice. But both Paul and, and Peter are clear. That if a new convert uh, is married to a, an unbeliever, they ought to remain married so long as the unbeliever is willing to remain with them. Because there is a union there, a, a profound union that should not be rent asunder. God has joined them together. Man should not separate them unduly. Yes, in the scriptures, there are grounds for divorce. Jesus himself says that, that sexual immorality is, is grounds to divorce. Peter, or Paul, makes it clear that, that if, if your unbelieving spouse deserts you, you are free to divorce. But what I want you to see is that, that God's uh, permission of divorce is a concession to our sinfulness. It is a, a concession to the fact that some marriages are broken by sin. And he gives the right to make legal that which has already happened in fact. When a marriage has already been broken, either by sexual immorality or when a marriage has already been broken by desertion, God gives his children permission to make legal what has already happened in fact, to, to sue for divorce. But you see, a, a, a whole marriage is never to be ended by divorce. 
A marriage that has not already been broken is, is never to be broken by divorce. When God has joined together, man is not to separate. It is only when the marriage is already broken by sexual morality, when it's already broken by divorce, or, or I mean already broken by desertion, that divorce is allowed. But those who unduly expand the grounds of divorce, those who say that a, a believer should simply walk away from their unbelieving spouse, or those who, who teach other forms of divorce, who, who suggest that uh, divorce is uh, permissible just simply because of irreconcilable differences, or even at no fault at all, just because you decided you no longer want to be married. Such views dishonor marriage, and in dishonoring marriage, they dishonor the king. It is King Jesus who said that the marriage, the lifelong marriage, the till death do us part marriage between a man and a woman is a foundational stone in his kingdom. It is essential to his shalom. And so we must not dishonor marriage by unduly expanding grounds for divorce. See, in all these ways, people dishonor marriage. They, they seek to redefine it. They seek to deny its goodness. They, they seek to deny its necessity or they, they seek to deny its mystery. But faith in Jesus Christ requires us to resist all of, all of these means, all of these ways of changing the very core of marriage. Marriage is God's design. It is God's good gift to his children. And if we are going to honor him as king, we must honor it. We must honor marriage, and we must keep the marriage bed undefiled. We must allow our faith in Jesus to transform our lives, even to the very core of our sexuality. So the question that is put before you this morning is simply this. Are you willing to have your views of sex transformed by your faith in Jesus? Are you willing to submit even this area of your life to his lordship? You see, Jesus only has radical disciples. He only has to the root disciples. Faith is, is more than, than merely acknowledging the truth of a few basic propositions about who he is or, or what he has done. Faith is pledging your fealty to him. It is absolute allegiance to him. It is receiving him as he is revealed to you in the Gospels, as the Lord of lords and the, the King of kings, as the incarnate Son of God come in the flesh to give his life as the ransom for many. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you will not bow to him as your Lord. And you cannot bow to him as Lord only in part. You cannot pick and choose which areas of your life you will submit to him. If he is not Lord of all of life, he is not Lord at all. If he is not Lord of your sex life, he is not Lord of all. So let me ask you again, are you willing to have him be Lord even of your sex life? It is a profound question. It was a profound question in the first century. It is a profound question today. The author's warning is clear. 
He says, those who will not bow to Jesus, those who will not submit even their sex life to his lordship, they will not be saved. It's as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. It does not mean that there is no forgiveness for those who, who have committed sexual sins. In that very passage, Paul goes on to say, such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. And just think of the example of, of King David. King David himself was guilty of grave sexual sin, and yet he was forgiven. There is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ for the sexually immoral. There is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ for the adulterer. But that forgiveness is offered to those who are repentant. To those who turn from their sin back to God, the full purpose of new obedience. If you are reserving this area of your life to do what is right in your own eyes, if you are reserving this area of life to do your own thing, if you will have them as, as Lord of the more peripheral things, but not of the core things, then He is not your Lord. And you must repent and turn to him in absolute devotion. But for the one who does repent, for the one who, who submits to Jesus as king, even in their sex life, there is a great promise, a promise of life and of life abundant. The one who bows to him, the one who loses their life, the one who denies themselves, takes up their cross, and follows him. The one who allows their faith to, to transform them to the very core of their being. The one who allows their faith to reshape even their sex life. That one has not only forgiveness, but life eternal through the Son. God is not anti-sex. He's not anti-pleasure. He's, he's not anti-happiness. He is for your eternal and solid joy. He would have you renounce the fleeting pleasures of Pharaoh's house to know the eternal joys of life in his kingdom. And it's because he is inviting us into an eternal inheritance in his kingdom that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, give us grace to receive this word. Father, you know how protective we are of the core things. You know how, how resistant we are to anyone telling us how to live in these central matters. Father, free us from such foolishness and give us grace to receive your word as it actually is, as the very word of God and as the words of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.